Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, we're going to talk about an interesting paper that uh, came out uh, a, few, a couple of weeks ago in JAMA that uh, took a look at the use of DOACs in patients who are receiving thrombolytics for acute stroke. So, you know, kind of an interesting study. And of course, you know, the, the piece about this study is you'd have, a, I think you'd have a hard time doing a prospective randomized control trial on this for a variety of reasons, not, not least of which is probably, you know, ethical issues. Um, so, you know, this is probably some of the best data we're going to get on this issue and until, uh, the, you know, the guidelines change or if they change and things along those lines. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what this study results really have, to, uh, what impact they have on the, in America neurology association guidelines and where we'll go from here basically but we know that thrombolytics are one of the best treatments that we have for treatment of acute ischemic stroke we have multiple studies that show that if given in a timely fashion which is always the the issue uh, uh, patients have improved outcomes including improved functionality um, and and decreased risk of death even in, in, in patients who uh, receive thrombolytics with an acute ischemic stroke there in recent years also been another really good treatment which which of course is mechanical thrombectomy um, and is equal or better probably than, than thrombolytics. Uh, the problem, of course, is that not all centers offer it. It takes specialized equipment and specially trained neurologists to do it. Um, and so, you know, thrombolytics are still kind of the mainstay of therapy for acute ischemic stroke. And of course, you have to, you know, present with a certain number of hours. You have to have certain symptoms. Um, and one of the big ones that is a pharmacist I deal with is contraindications. And there's a list of contraindications fairly long for a receiving, uh, being a candidate for thrombolysis and acute ischemic stroke. One of the big ones, of course, is being on anticoagulation prior to having a stroke and seeing if you're a candidate. Traditionally, if you take a look at, at the guidelines and if you take a look at the package insert for uh, thrombolytics, they largely say, well, you know, if, if someone's been on warfarin and their INR is above 1.7, that's that's a contraindication to receiving them. And if you've been on, you know, other anticoagulants or, or other antiplatelet agents, you know, that that could possibly be, a, be an or be a, a contraindication as well. That makes things a problem, especially because many of these patients have atrial fibrillation. And if they have atrial fibrillation, they hopefully um, are on anticoagulation to prevent recurrent stroke. Now, of course, they don't prevent all recurrent strokes. They, they prevent some recurrent strokes. And the, the decreased incidence of stroke is about 75%. So, I mean, they're not that they're not effective. They're incredibly effective. But no drugs 100%. And patients are still going to have strokes, um, even, even though they're on an appropriate antithrombotic for their, their uh, um, atrial fibrillation. So, you know, what do you do in that patient who comes in who is on an anticoagulant and now has an acute stroke and they come in the right period of, of, of time and they everything else is kind of uh, fitting, you know, do you or don't you give them thrombolysis in those patients? And so one of the key things that, of course, has changed in the last 10 years is that a lot of these patients have not been on warfarin, but have actually been on DOACs, right? And so we know, you know, uh, apixaban and uh, um, a rivaroxaban to a lesser extent, the gabatran have all been uh, shown to improve outcomes in patients similarly or perhaps better to warfarin in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation as far as, as, as thrombosis and stroke is concerned. And of course, patients are on DOEX for lots of other reasons, such as DVT and PE, and now even some data looking at, at stable coronary disease and peripheral arterial disease. So, you know, there's a number of reasons why somebody may be on a DOAC uh, and then develop an acute ischemic stroke. And again, that gives the neurologist or the emergency physician kind of a quandary, you know, gee, should I, I risk giving this to them or should I not? And unfortunately, the data with, with DOACs, um, and especially recent ingestion of DOACs uh, before the acute stroke, 
stroke, really don't have a lot of information on that. Um, you know, the guidelines say that it basically should exclude patients who have uh, received a, a dose of DOAC within 48 hours of the stroke as far as this thrombolysis is concerned, but that's just based on a presumed uh, uh, increased risk of, of intracranial hemorrhage. And we don't know that that's true or not. And it's important to note that we might not be able to translate data from warfarin over to the DOACs because, you know, while you can kind of go back and forth about how effective and how safe these agents are, it's it's pretty uh, uh, commonly uh, all thought together that that these, these drugs definitely decrease the risk of intracranial hemorrhage compared to warfarin. And almost all of them have at least a 50% decreased risk of intracranial hemorrhage compared with warfarin as well. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, the data with warfarin may say, you know, yes, it increases the risk of, of stroke, but we may not have the same data with DOACs. And interestingly, in animal models of ischemic stroke, uh, DOACs did not increase the risk of hemorrhage after thrombolysis, whereas warfarin did. So there is, I think, some biological plausibility as well as, as some of the differences is in risk of intracranial hemorrhage versus DOACs versus uh, uh, warfarin in patients who are receiving thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke. That it may be reasonable to take a look at that at uh, whether this is in fact the case. And that's what the paper we're going to talk about today kind of did. Uh, again, the, you know, it, it's not, but it's going to be very difficult to do a randomized control trial on this. So they did not try to do that. They actually did an international multi-center retrospective cohort study that included both published and unpublished data to address to address whether you know patients who've received recently received DOACs or increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage, and that's really what they what they were primarily trying to do. They also wanted to take a look at the different DOACs themselves, and you know say, gee, you know, you know, is any one of these any better or worse as far as safety is concerned around thrombolysis, uh, the time period, whether or not they measured uh, plasma levels of the DOAC, or or if they received reversal of the DOAC prior to receiving the thrombolysis. And so they wanted to look, I think, at a variety of, I think, clinically important questions um, that that I think if you're, again, dealing with acute ischemic stroke patients, whether you're a neurologist or emergency room physician or emergency room pharmacist, you're probably going to be asking those questions quite a bit. So this was an international multi-center retrospective analysis. And, and at first, I thought this was going to be a meta-analysis. I thought they were going to do a systematic review and meta-analysis. But in fact, they did not. They, they actually went and looked at published data um, on, on this issue and then actually reached out to uh, several of the uh, sites that they brought into the study and asked for any unpublished data that they might have on, on the subject. So kind of an interesting way to approach this. I mean, you know, again, looking when I first started to read this, I thought, okay, they're just going to compile all the information you can find in, in the literature and just do a meta-analysis. But no, they actually reached out to individual centers and tried to get published and unpublished information from them on everybody who received uh, uh, thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke, and then went backwards and took a look to see which of them which of those patients had gotten an ingestion, a recent ingestion of a DOAC or not. So they looked at stroke registries that are, are often in the public domain or are often published, as well as individual um, um, centers themselves. So kind of a unique way to do a retrospective study. And I mean, you know, again, while no retrospective study can come to the level of, of a randomized control trial, I think they really did leave no stone unturned to try and pull as many patients as they possibly could uh, to, to do this analysis. So kind of interesting. The study included patients from 64 centers worldwide, and they were recruited between 2008 and 2021. Um, almost all of them were tertiary care centers that offered 
both thrombosis or thrombolysis as well as mechanical thrombectomy 24 hours a day. Now, again, you could argue that may limit uh, some of their data and, and may bias things because, again, many, many hospitals don't offer mechanical thrombectomy 24 hours a day, and they only offer thrombolysis with perhaps transport to a place that does offer thrombectomy if, if it's within a, a relative uh, close range to them, basically. So kind of keep that in mind as we're going through. There's a number of other potential limiters that we have to think about when we, when we take a look at this study. They included patients who are adults, obviously over age 18, if they had an acute ischemic stroke, um, and that was confirmed by the usual clinical, you know, you know, they had symptoms. Remember that a lot of times we don't have time to do a strict imaging uh, to find out for sure if they've had a stroke, and, and what usually we get a non-contrast CT just to make sure they don't have a bleed before they actually get a, a thrombolysis. Uh, so uh, again, clinical uh, criteria for acute ischemic stroke. They had a confirmed ingestion of a DOAC within the last 48 hours, and you know, again, reading through this paper, I was kind of like, well, how do they know that? I mean, you know, did they just ask, or you know, did you know, uh, were the, if if this is in a country where they were able to use pharmacovigilance data to take a look and see did they receive that? That, that those are some questions that I kind of had about that. If that they underwent uh, thrombolysis with um, any drug, but as you might imagine, the overwhelming number of patients uh, received Alteplase, um, and, and and some patients did receive TNKase, um, but the vast vast majority of these patients receive Alteplase because that's the drug that's been used for you know 15 years as a, throm a thrombolytic for acute ischemic stroke. And, you know, in the United States anyway, it's just been in the last two or three years where some centers are going over to, to, uh, to neck the place or TNKs instead of, of thrombo uh, instead of uh, TPA. Uh, there was no time limit with regard to the window, so they didn't actually take a look at, at when patients received the thrombolysis in, in, in uh, relation to the symptoms that they had. They just basically had to have a known DOAC ingestion within 48 hours of stroke onset, and that was it. They didn't have any exclusion criteria, really. <laughs> so I, I think they wanted to, to, to cast a wide net and see what's going on. Um, they did look at records of consecutive patients over the study timeframe, so there was no randomization of these patients. They basically, I think, again, tried to leave no stone unturned and pull every single patient they had from these centers to try and, and, and compare them and try and answer this question. So uh, uh, then once they had all these patients in this arm, they then divided the patients to receive, again, those who received DOAX within 48 hours, and the comparison group was uh, eventually the same group in all these cohorts that did not receive uh, any sort of anticoagulation therapy, including warfarin, uh, um, before their, their uh, thrombolysis. So, uh, you know, one arm, uh, again, confirmed DOAC use within 48 hours, the other arm, no anticoagulation use at all. Um, and, you know, one could argue it would have been kind of nice for them to, to maybe, since this as retrospective data to kind of have a third arm that took a look at patients who received warfarin or had an INR greater than 1.7 prior to receiving thrombolysis. Again, you know, there may not be very many of those patients and it may be hard to draw any conclusions from, but you were pulling the data anyway. Why, why don't I take a look at that? Is that something I kind of thought of as I was reading this? The, the control population was, was generated partially in a different time frame. So, I mean, they just basically, you know, they, they, the, the patients they pulled may have been from a different, you know, year than other year, but really in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, and certainly during the, the time period of the study, there wasn't a whole lot of differences with the exception of mechanical thrombectomy of big changes to acute ischemic stroke. So, so again, uh, uh, patients who had a confirmed last ingestion of a DOAC within 48 hours, who then received thrombolysis, um, and patients who didn't receive any anticoagulation. Other than that, um, all therapies were, were at, the, at the discretion of the local investigators. So again, you know, 
any platelet therapy, DVT prophylaxis, uh, statins, um, you know, ACE inhibitors, things that have been shown to, to, be, to be beneficial in, in, a, in you know, after an acute ischemic stroke. That was all, all basically at, at the discretion of the local um, um, physicians. They pulled then all the record reviews and, and data bag queries to, to take a look at, at this wide variety of patients, as you might imagine. They would have to pull a whole bunch of data to look for some of the possible confounding variables. So they looked at demographic characteristics, medical history, whether or not they were on antiplatelet therapy, if obviously whether they're on DOAC therapy, any other clinical um, information, laboratory values, uh, rec uh, any information on, on any treatments, including recanalization treatments, including, again, thrombolysis or mechanical thrombectomy. They looked at dose of, of the thrombolysis, which I thought was, was pretty good. Um, then they uh, looked at selection strategies of, of who picked what for what reason. They also very interestingly, and I think very good for them, uh, looked at uh, uh, places that reverse them. So, you know, someone came in, they were on a DOAC within 24, 48 hours, and they received specific DOAC reversal. So they received Praxabind if they were on Dabigatran, they received a Dexanet Alpha if they were on either um, Apixaban or Rivaroxaban. Now, one thing that's interesting is they did not include patients who have gotten Kcentra for a reversal of the factor 10 drugs, again, a Rivaroxaban and Apixaban. It's not FDA approved for that indication, but many, many hospitals across the country, in fact, do use Kcentra as a reversal agent for the factor 10 drugs. Um, there are several studies trying to come out right now to see if there's a, a benefit of one of these drugs over another, but it's, it's mostly a cost thing uh, with the Dex and Alpha being as expensive it is, as it is. Again, many hospitals have, have, have gone to case center, so it would have been pretty nice if they had looked at that as well, but they did not. They really just took a look at, at direct reversal agents, so it's something to kind of keep in mind as, as, as we're looking at, at external validity of, of this. Um, now, again, as you might imagine, uh, uh, many of these patients, you know, they didn't know until after the fact, until after they'd gotten the thrombolysis that, oh yeah, by the way, I, I take a Pixaban, you know, and I'm sure that caused some sphincter tightening among, among the physicians who, who, who administered this going, please don't, please don't have a bad outcome. Please don't have a bad outcome. Um, but, but, you know, again, that does happen. I mean, we don't, we don't always get a, a, a perfect med, med rec on patients or they forgot to tell people that they were taking it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where they say, you know, quite a few of these patients ended up was, was that there was basically just unknown whether they received a DOAC before um, they, uh, received thrombolysis. So that's, that's kind of important to know as, as, as we go along here. Primary outcome was intracranial hemorrhage, was, which was defined as a uh, intracranial hemorrhage is, is reported by the site investigators until 36 hours after the thrombolysis. Uh, but they also had to have neurologic worsening with, with a decrease of at least four points on the NIHSS scale. That's the standardized scale that looks at functionality after, after an acute stroke. And uh, that had to be worse by four points uh, compared to immediately before uh, um, uh, deterioration, and uh, they, you know, they didn't give any very specific criteria for as far as is imaging, as far as intracranial hemorrhage. Again, it was mostly at the discretion of the local physicians and, and their report that yes, this patient had some sort of intracranial hemorrhage. Secondary outcomes included just radiological intracranial hemorrhage, so you know whether that was neurological worsening or not. And then the third big uh, uh, outcome was functional independence, defined by a modified Rankin score of two or less at 90 days. And as, as we know, that's another uh, scale that takes a look at, at uh, functionality after an acute stroke. And basically, if, if you have a score of two or less, then, then you pretty much can live independently and function independently, et cetera, et cetera. And the lower the number, the better there, as you might imagine. So then we get into the statistics. As you might imagine, the statistics were, they were straightforward, but they were, they, they were in depth. They would have to be, right? So they performed a multi-level mixed effects logistic regression to basically account for the tons and tons of variables that you're going to 
have in a study like this. So uh, they they looked at all sorts of variables in, in their regression model that included the different types of DOACs, uh, when they received them, if they were reversed, uh, geographic region, um, uh, the baseline NIHHS score, age, whether they had hypertension or not, uh, their functional independence score. So they did it, looked at an MRS score before they even had the stroke, what their emission blood pressure and glucose were, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we could probably spend the next 20 minutes discussing this. But again, I think they did a pretty good job trying to, to put into the regression model um, uh, all the confounders they could think of that may lead to, to a bias in, in one way or the other as far as the data. So again, it was uh, you know in-depth, but certainly not weird or unusual stats. They were pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, regression analysis would exactly be what I would think you'd want to, want to do for something like this. So uh, kind of, in, uh, you know, I think, you know, they, they did a good job trying to come up with most of the confounding factors and basically take a look at that. They included 33,207 patients with acute ischemic stroke. Um, and of those, 832 uh, had received a DOAC compared to about 32,000 patients who had not. So obviously a very small percentage, as, as you might imagine. Um, of the of these patients, uh, about 45% of them were female. The median age was 73. And the uh, NIHSS score was 9, on which was kind of smack dab in the middle of 5 to 16. Um, there were some differences. Again, this wasn't a randomized control trial. So as you might imagine, there may be some differences between the DOAC group and the no anticoagulation group. Uh, patients who uh, had recent ingestion of DOACs were older. That stands for reason because as we get older, we're more likely to have atrial fibrillation. They had a higher prevalence of hypertension. Again, stands for reason because as we get older, we're more likely to have hypertension and had a higher degree of pre-stroke disability um, um, compared to the control group. Uh, the control group were, were more likely to be smokers, okay, had a longer, a smaller time of symptom onset to treatment. They did experience uh, more severe stroke in the in the DOAC arm compared to the com uh, control arm and were more likely to have a large vessel inclusion. Uh, uh, interestingly, and I think I think that, you know, gives me some some uh, some good news, I think, is that the antiplatelet therapy was more frequent in controls compared to the DOAC group. I very commonly see uh, patients receiving baby aspirin on top of DOACs for atrial fibrillation. And often, you know, they're receiving it because of cardioprotection or something like that. And, you know, the guidelines are pretty clear that in most cases, that's just not needed and increases the risk of bleed. So it was good to note that it was the patients who did not receive DOACs that tended to be on antiplatelets much more than the patients who were receiving DOACs. So I thought that was actually, actually a, a pretty good thing. The, most of the vast, vast majority of these patients were taking it for atrial fib, not really that big of a surprise, but a small percentage that were taking for other thrombosis. Um, um, uh, the, pay, the baseline uh, comparison showed that those not receiving uh, in, uh, thrombolysis were older, had a higher prevalence of vascular risk factors except smoking, had a higher degree of pre-stroke disability, had a longer time from symptom onset to admission, experienced less stroke, and were less likely to be treated with mechanical thrombectomy. So one of the big uh, things that's worth noting is that over 50% of these patients were on dabigatran. And as at least in my neck of the woods, and I think this is pretty true uh, in the United States, we just don't use uh, that drug much anymore. Um, the factor 10 drugs, apixaban and, 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 and rivaroxaban really have taken over over uh, almost all um, um, uh, DOAC use here in the United States, but certainly for atrial fibrillation. I think you're not going to find in most uh, uh, atrial fib patients in the United States that anywhere near 50% of them are on dabigatran. And I would argue probably less than 10% on. I can't remember the last time I saw a patient with dabigatran admitted to my hospital. So um, that is something to kind of keep in mind since it was not done much in the U.S. A lot of these patients were still on dabigatran. So, so keep that in mind. Interestingly, they they noted that, you know, you know again, a lot of these patients were on dabigatran 
gabagatran. And then one of the things they wanted to look at was reversal. And they don't comment in the study, at least not that I could find that, you know, what percentage of patients actually got reversed. I mean, they said that they accounted for that in, in their model, but I was kind of hoping they would give us what percentage of patients actually got reversed with Praxmine before they received thrombolysis. So kind of interesting. So, so what did they find? What are the results? We're going to talk about that right after this word from CE Impact. Have you purchased your 2023 CE Impact membership yet? Go to ceimpact.com so you don't miss out on getting CE for great education like this podcast. Go to ceimpact.com to learn more. So we're back talking about a very interesting study uh, that gives us some some uh, good clinical information talking about the use of DOAX uh, before people receiving thrombolysis for, for an acute stroke. Um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, again, uh, 832 uh, of this uh, patients in this cohort did receive a, a DOAC compared to this big big number about 32,000 patients who did not. Um, so uh, when they take when they took a look at this, uh, 1,345 patients did develop intracranial hemorrhage within 36 hours. So 1,345 of about 33. So about 4.1% did develop intracranial hemorrhage in 36 hours after thrombolysis. Um, after they adjusted for all these, you know, uh, uh, confounding factors in the regression analysis, uh, uh, they basically found that the uh, adjusted odds ratio um, for uh, developing an intracranial uh, hemorrhage was, it was actually less with patients who were receiving DOACs compared to patients who received no anticoagulation at all. Yes, less, and that surprised me <laughs> pretty much. And and reading the discussion of the uh, of the investigators in their paper, it it pretty much surprised them too. So adjusted odds ratio was actually 0.57 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.36 to 0.92, and it did reach statistical significance. So yes, once again, patients who in this study were on DOACs had a decreased risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And this and they they split the study up one side and down the other, looking at all the individual factors in in their. Uh, regression analysis, and it was pretty much uh, the same uh, uh, story across all the different subtypes, whether you had hypertension or not, age, gender, et cetera, et cetera. So, so very, very interesting. Um, uh, a smaller number of patients uh, had an intracranial hemorrhage if they were on DOACs compared to, compared to they, if they weren't. Um, uh, then they took a look, and, and we said functional outcome at 90 days was another big thing they looked at. Uh, so functional outcome at 90 days was known for 664 patients who received ingestion of DOACs and 29,000 uh, patients who were in controls. Um, patients with missing outcome data, because again, these patients went home, so they might have been lost to follow-up, had a similar prognostic profile. So uh, of that, 56.5% um, of the patients Patients who were in the control arm who did not receive anticoagulation were functionally independent uh, at 90 days. The rate, unadjusted rate of functional independence was 45% in patients taking DOACs compared to 57% in control patients who, you, who, who use no anticoagulants. Um, and when they took a look at, at uh, adjusted risk of death, interestingly, there was a slightly increased risk of death at 90 days in the patients who received DOACs compared to controls. It was adjusted odds ratio of 1.13, but it did not reach statistical significance. So uh, uh, 0.2 was, was the p-value there. So again, you could argue, well, the point value was a little bit higher than, than unity, but it did not seem to, to, to reach statistical significance. So they, they comment that in the discussion as well. Um, and again, when they took a look at, at patients who went on a mechanical thrombectomy or had large vessel occlusion, they found the exact same uh, um, uh, lower odds of intracranial hemorrhage in those who received DOACs compared to, to, to those. So again, very, very interesting. Um, and so, you know, the, the 
the authors in the discussion basically uh, saddle gobsmack themselves and, and talk a little bit about gee whiz you know you know what happened here and you know uh, they they said you know this was kind of counterintuitive this is really what they were expecting but they note that uh, as I said before that you know animal models uh, have suggested that there wasn't an increased risk of, of intracranial hemorrhage in patients who received DOAX um, compared to uh, uh, patients who received warfarin. So, you know, again, it, it is, pot, you know, there's some biologic plausibility why this might happen and it might not just be the play of chance. So, you know, I think that that's, you know, that's interesting to control. Now, of course, one of the things they talk about, and I agree, probably one of the big things is selection bias, right? You know, um, you know, do, do uh, uh, physicians who are selecting thrombolysis for patients, uh, would they tend to select one or another patients who would they feel may, have, may be at higher risk for intracranial hemorrhage and those patients just happen to fall in the in the DOAC arm compared to they didn't because remember in a lot of these cases they didn't know the patient was on DOAC or they, they gave the thrombolysis without that that knowledge a priori and so it is did they just select for patients that just happen to be in in the DOAC arm that just you know were less likely to develop intracranial hemorrhage and so that 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 might explain what's going on here and like all retrospective studies, a residual or unmeasured confounding bias may, may explain the, the, the risk reserved. Um, they do note that DOACs, you know, there may be a pathophysiologic finding. And, and as I said, in experimental stroke, uh, um, they, they felt that, that thrombin inhibition, either directly or via the coagulation stage, may actually be protective against the occurrence of, of an, an, uh, intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, that, again, seems kind of counterintuitive to me, but they said they note a study that patients who, who received th uh, thrombolysis who actually got argatriban. Uh, actually had a lower risk of, of intracranial hemorrhage compared to con, uh, people who just got thrombolysis. And that's actually being studied in, in a clinical trial. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how many IRBs will, will be okay with that kind of clinical trial. So, you know, basically they they spend the discussion saying, we're not really sure why this was, you know, we, we expected that there would be no real difference, but they did find actually statistically significant lower instances of intracranial hemorrhage. And they really don't know the answer why there's some theories, but, but but really we don't know because this is a retrospective study. It is possible, though unlikely, that this is due to the play of chance. But that's something we have to kind of keep in mind. So, you know, the the stroke guidelines, the people who write the the stroke lines, American Neurology, Neurology Association, uh, who have to write the stroke guidelines, are really going to have to take a look at this data, I think, and they're really going to have to to, to make a, a decision about you know do they change the relative contraindications or absolute contraindications of using DOACs before. Uh, a, a candidacy for thrombolysis is, is changed. Now, it's important to note that they've done that before. Um, the, the, the people who have written the guidelines have made adjustments to their guidelines uh, on safety anyway, based on data that came out. Um, and probably one of the big things of that, of course, is the time factor, right? The time window that uh, uh, patients uh, um, who are cancer thrombolysis has changed somewhat over the years. You know, again, within three hours is always the way to go, but they've kind of nudged that out a little bit as more data suggested in some cases going out to 4.5 hours may be fine. So there's certainly a precedent for guidelines as far as safety of thrombolysis and strokes changing as time goes on. Uh, so we'll see if, if the guidelines do that. Um, now in the United States, that may be a little bit harder to make this call because again due to the litigious nature of 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 of, of, of things in the united states you know i think f clinicians might be a little more reluctant to do that um so you know you know if you're a neurologist er pharmacist er physician you know i think you would you know you certainly can take this study and say okay you know um you know use of doax has always kind of been you know a, a relative to absolute contraindication this gives you more data to suggest that it is a relative contraindication and i don't think you want you're going to want to give thrombolysis to everybody 
everybody you know who, who came in with, with a DOAC use within 48 hours, but certainly, you know, depending on the clinical case, you just want to maintain, take a look at that clinical case. And, and it's certainly if you think that the benefit outweighs the risk, I think you could no, note that the risk is probably lower in that calculation than we previously thought. So that's something to kind of to give some food for thought. So that's it for this week's Game Changers. Thanks for listening. We will see you uh, next uh, week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. And that's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. Get the link to Jeff's new music drop in the show notes. And don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode or get access to the CE by becoming a member at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.